Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rhoda, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about how we can learn from our past to predict our future with Mr. Bob Treadway. Bob has worked as a futurist for 35 years. Many of his clients have been in agriculture organizations, such as the National Corn Growers, American Soybean Association, the Iowa Pork Industry Center, Syngenta, the Meat Export Federation, and more. His work typically involves strategy and leadership education. Outside of agriculture, Bob's work with Gillette, divisions of Berkshire Hathaway, the National League of Cities, the Society, the Social Security Administration, and leading organizations in financial services, information security, accounting, insurance, and various segments of technology. We are excited to have Bob with us today to talk with us about a recent presentation he had or a keynote that you had at Iowa or at uh, Iowa State Swine Day. And we'd like to expand on that today on this podcast. So thank you for joining us today, Bob. My pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get to where you are today? And how the heck did you end up talking at Iowa State Swine Day? Oh, good question. I'll try to make the story short. Um, I, uh, I had trouble determining what my major should be in, in college. And the counselors all said, because you got these equal SAT scores in these areas, you know, pick something out. And I, uh, I took a, I come from a not very wealthy background. My father was in the Air Force uh, as an enlisted guy. And uh, I ended up passing a great exam uh, that they gave to determine people to go to work building highways in the state of California. And that sort of channeled me into engineering as a major uh, when I got that degree and started building uh, roads and bridges, the U.S. Army uh, decided they needed me during uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, my friends and neighbors uh, set me up with that. But I didn't want to tell the Army what I did as a living because I'd grown up around the military and knew where I would go. Anyway, I ended up in broadcasting. Uh, I was a, a, a broadcaster on the American Forces Network in Europe. I stayed in that career field for a while and uh, owned radio stations. In fact, I owned a farm radio station in Greeley, Colorado, uh, along with partners uh, that really gave me a, a grounding in agriculture. And I started consulting to that industry and then got referrals outside of it. So I was doing general management consulting. Strategic planning was one of the things that we did. Uh, my clients didn't do a very good job of what you just mentioned in the intro, which is looking ahead, learning from the past and looking ahead, not trying to just invent the future. And uh, pretty soon that was all I was doing. And that's been the case for the last, uh, as you said, 35 years. So I'm interested in kind of jumping right in then to forecasting the future. And the, the topic that we'll start with, with is what are some basics of those who work in agriculture and what they should understand about 
forecasting the future? Yeah, I, forecasting is my preference for looking ahead. It, it it's I, the way I define it is that it's it's looking into the years that are coming, uh, but taking uncertainty into account. That's the thing that always fools us on predictions. Very difficult to predict anything because there's always a range of uncertainty, and I suggest that uh, that individuals think about that. And try not to do it alone. Try to do it with other people. Bounce your ideas and your and your uh, your sort of forecasts off of others. So, because a forecast changes with time and new information. So, if it changes with new information, where are you getting your information? I say you got to have some kind of a habit to not just look at the same old stuff all the time, but change it up and broaden your uh, scanning. I refer to it as scanning. Basically, looking at media. And and recognizing the things that are going to make a difference in the future, something that is uh, that's going to have big implications or it's surprising or it's going to have a big impact on the field. So developing a habit of looking at different media. And there's some things that I have on on my website that that are uh, recommendations in that area. But one of them I really like for for people in ag is quartz, qz.com, Z.com, if you're listening to this in Canada, it's it's a great compilation from editors. They they cover almost all of the news. It comes to you every morning, probably before you're even out the door. And uh, and then you can scan through that and pick out things that I think would have an impact. So those kinds of things are really the, the habits that I like to see engendered, especially in agricultural leaders or people like you who are everyone basically in agriculture owns their own business. And this is, you're a leader of the business. You ought to stay informed. So what are some of the key things you've seen as of late or since you started in agriculture where that has really come to fruition, like where you're scanning and you find something and you saw it and Mm-hmm. Like, what does that look like when you do see it? How do you know? Because there is so much noise. There's so much technology. There's so much innovation. How do you know that's going to be the next big thing? Yeah. Um, uh, what I'd like to suggest is that people have an ongoing sort of cone of relative certainty that they build. In other words, if we look at the range of what's coming and all those different factors, like you just mentioned, uh, technology, regulation, trade, uh, consumer habits, uh, all of those kinds of developments are confusing to look at. But if you think of them in terms of, hey, let me make a picture of about three to five years out and update it as I see new things, that I think will allow you to uh, say that, hey, if that, do I really need to know if that's the next big thing or do I want to put it on my radar and try to track those developments as they move ahead? Uh, and then you sort of you begin to form your own opinions about, hey, here are the things that I need to be watching, you know, uh, and and here are the trigger events that I need to prepare for. Uh, in agriculture, that every election, every national election is a trigger event. You get a new Congress, uh, maybe you get a new White House. Those kinds of things are all the things that really affect the big, huge, uncontrollable aspects of agriculture, like trade to a certain extent and regulation uh, and uh, to a certain extent, the economy, those kinds of things. So what surprised you over the past few decades then? Uh, I'm not uh, an agriculture person by training, obviously. I've had exposure to it, like I mentioned about the farm radio station. 
But uh, the more I work with the field, the more I'm astounded at the amount of resilience and creativity and innovation that I see in the field. When I grew up and I got my first uh, university education, uh, Sputnik had gone up. We were in a Cold War with Russia and people, people were taking people like me and pushing them into engineering. Today, if I was starting out in, uh, in a career field, believe me, agriculture is one of them that would be very high on my list. It has all of the aspects, uh, you know, everything from not only the technological side of it to the sales side and the, and the uh, you know, the, the interaction with consumers. It's uh, developing in a positive way. The product productivity is going up. Uh, there are exciting niches within it. Uh, it's uh, it's really it's really something that I think was the agriculture the the aerospace engineering of yesterday I think is the is the agricultural engineering or uh, economics of today. That's uh, a so good that's point. one thing. It, yeah, it, it is incredibly difficult to get siloed in agriculture, right? <laughs> I mean, no pun intended there, but like if you're a producer, just like decades ago. You have to figure out a way and it might not be welding and plumbing and carpentry and everything else anymore, electrical work. And, but you're still going to have to understand technology, how to implement and manage it. You're going to have to understand how to recruit internationally and how to manage it. You get, I mean, you got all these different aspects of what it means to be a, a farmer anymore that you have to wear many hats like you've always had to, but it's just different hats now. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that always attracted me to the field. You know, I'd go in and do a strategic plan, say, for a commodity association. People sitting in the room are not only not only smart, uh, you know, and and good thinkers, but they know so much. They're so handy and they're they're quick on the uptake because they've had to be in order to be able to survive in agriculture this long. And as you say, it's just the new tools that they need to come along with. Now, I will say there's there's two kind of flat spots that I see in, in agriculture generally. One is the university preparations don't do enough in terms of the soft skills, they call them. And they're not really that soft, but uh, working with the media, doing persuasion, communication skills, all of those things uh, are really not developed strongly in a person in a university education. I've always been a believer in a strong uh, liberal arts base before you specialize too much in a particular field. And I think we've moved away from that. So that's one thing that I think is a flat spot. Um, and, you know, the uh, another one is that I don't think I, I think everyone should have their own political opinions. But too often I see agriculture only going to one side versus being a little more agnostic and recognizing that, hey, every now and then you're going to have to work with a democratic administration. And I think that the ability to be a little more deft and a little more uh, practiced in that is something that I'd like to see a little more flexibility, if you will, or, or, the, or the two is one of the other flat spots that I see. Well, one interesting aspect on that when you go political is immigration. If you look at the party lines, you can draw some interesting perspectives of what each side is looking for. But when you look at agriculture, I have never been to a conference in five years where getting more legal immigration was a problem. 
And that really means immigration reform is something that our industry is a huge pro on. Yeah. Yet it, it gets muddied when politics gets involved. Well, and then you end up voting. And I, I say vote your conscience, vote your, vote your values, but, but don't neglect your business. Vote for your business. Don't vote in your own, uh, to your own detriment. And that's, that's definitely labor is one of those areas. I, hey, robotics is coming on fast. But it ain't going to replace your your hired hands in in a lot awful lot of situations. So, what should ag professionals be looking for uh, or watching for the decade ahead? One of them is that uh, I think here's and here's another bit of a flat spot. Um, I think that the top level producers, farmers, whether in they're in animal ag or in grain or any other field are going to be those that are the most business astute, those that are the most sophisticated business practitioners, watching uh, margins, understanding the bottom line, and not tied to government programs, but technologically smart, innovative, and collaborative. And that's one of the things, that's one of the bottom lines. I think in another decade, we'll really see that trend start to take huge effect. And the those uh, producers... Who are who are oriented in that way? I think will be those that thrive and survive. Animal Ag also has uh, another uh, competitor that's emerged in the last decade, and that's the the plant based meat uh, situation. And I think in order to be able to compete in that arena, where that where that market share for that product is coming on and coming on fast, is that they need to start thinking about you know, do I want to produce a commodity product that's dumped into a you know, another large commodity and marketed to the American consumer that way? Or do I, if I'm a smaller producer, do I really want to start thinking about uh, aiming my product at some niches or trying to differentiate more, as well as not losing uh, sight of the fact that you need those technology tools. You've got to be generating enough profit so that you can invest and reinvest into all of these things that have names like precision or analytics or automation or artificial intelligence, all of these things, you might think, well, that's only for the for the big uh, operators. No, it's not. It's for everyone, I think, in the future. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point. So it, like when we look at the automotive industry and we look at um, mechanics, uh, mechanics for so long were able to purchase a piece of equipment and they could use it for years and they could work on these cars, offer very competitive pricing, which kept the community close. But then more automation and more technology was placed into these vehicles. And then they had to update their software and all their tools every single year. And that cost kept climbing to the point where they could no longer afford to work on newer model vehicles because they could not keep their profits at a place where they could they could keep up with tech. And that. I never connected that dot, but that sounds like a, a potential issue for smaller producers. If if you aren't able to keep up sooner or later, you're just gonna you're, you're too far gone. Oh, exactly right. Yeah, and it's a. I mean, there's still a, a place for those mechanics who know how to uh, yep. repair because we built quality products in this country yep. for a long time. They're gonna. But the reason why we can't you can't buy a new car today. What's the reason? It doesn't have anything to do with uh, with steel availability. It has to do with microchip availability. Right now, we can't get cars through the supply chain because we're missing that one essential technological component. 
And that, you know, that should that should be a lesson. In fact, if I was scanning, if I'm if I'm doing kind of an analysis of the future and thinking analytically about it, I've got to recognize that that, hey, that's that is so important. What does that tell me if that occurs? What's going to happen next? And that's part of the whole forecasting. It's one of the things that I take leaders through in the education process. I work with them is to think about the implications of that. It means that there's going to be a battle, a war, a a concentration on the chip, on the technology versus necessarily the the trade agreements or, you know, the Uh the consumer desires. So So when we look at the business acumen that's going to be needed for the next decade or more, right, you know, it's just going to continue to get more refined. Uh, sustainability credits or tracking sustainability is another big thing that has has come up. And I was at a recent keynote where the speaker had mentioned that there's local sustainability and global sustainability. There's reducing inputs and there's also making them more efficient. He's like some places you're just exporting your carbon footprint to another country and others you're producing, which was very interesting for me. But what role do you think sustainability has over the next decade as individuals continue to take advantage of the opportunities that lie behind the um, the initiatives behind sustainability as opposed to fighting them? I, you know, as you asked me that question, I had a couple of uh, couple of reactions. Uh, um, one is uh, for anything to be adopted, it's really mostly about the money, isn't it? Yeah, it's the money and sustainability and carbon credits right now are, you know, they're they're not very valuable. Uh, The market hasn't been really developed yet. I think in another decade, given if if we tend to move in this direction and if we especially if we continue to have these events that uh, affect the climate, uh, like, you know, another Midwest drought, let's hope it never has pray it never happens. But that's going to that's going to turn some heads. But, you know, when that stuff gets to be uh, viable, that's really going to have a big impact on agriculture. And, and the second thing is, it, it, it's something that's may, maybe even more current and something that I think operators, especially in animal ag, really ought to watch is, you know, when you're doing that work, my concept is you're operating an ecosystem. That's the local aspect of things. What's going on right on your farm? Uh, there's an ecosystem there. And something that I think animal agriculture hasn't quite come to total grips with, we're talking about it, I've seen some examples, some early early adopters on it, is the waste stream. Okay, your animals produce manure and various other things. And what do you do with those? Do you just store them? Do you dump them? Do you put them back on the, you know, whatever it is. But um, some sophisticated operators are now operating uh, systems, including digesters and those kinds of things that are technologically quite sophisticated in order to be able to boost their sustainability, to provide energy for their operation, uh, to, uh, to, make, uh, to make the things that you're dumping into the, the water system safe instead of uh, a pollutant as it may have been in the past. So, and, and that's, a, you know, if you remember it, uh, at Swine Day, I, I told the story of a dairy farmer in, um, um, yes. in Montana yes. who uh, really literally saved their operation. I mean, milk prices have always been just this horrible uh, situation to deal with. 
And they uh, they put it. They got a grant, a government grant, put in a digester system to take their manure, scrape it out of the barn, dump it into the system, and they got these these. Uh, first of all, a liquid product that they could put right back on the crops that were downhill from them. They got a they got methane off that they burned in an engine and provided energy not only for the uh, for the farm for the five dwellings that were on the farm, but sold back more of it to the co op. And they had the, the biggest uh, surprise was they had this great uh, dry product. It uh, looks almost like peat moss that they were using for bedding in the barn, but they were selling it in bags and they couldn't keep it on the on the shelves of the local garden stores. Consumers were buying this stuff and swore by it as a as a soil amendment. And, uh, you know, the vegetables that they produced were supposedly these huge things. I, you know, th- there's an example of a creative and technologically oriented situation that relates to sustainability that I think, you know, more and more producers ought to catch on to. So when we look to the future here, what are the most overlooked factors that will affect agriculture? Uh, two, Two categories. The first is what has already happened I find that my clients, and I've had real smart clients like you listed in that introduction over the years, but they think that, you know, the things that they really need to pay attention are those things that haven't happened yet, but need to be forecasted and dealt with before they happen. But there's all of the stuff that has already happened that we tend to overlook. And, you know, so, you know, we've had a pandemic. What does that mean? Well, in in animal agriculture, I think that means that there's greater consumer, uh, you know, recognition that diseases, especially those that'll, that originate in the animal kingdom, uh, that cross over the line to humans are something that really needs to be addressed. And I think, you know, the positive messaging you could do in that particular area is one. So, you know, there's an example of something that's, you know, that's already occurred. And that's what I typically see. But it's also the things that are, are sort of under the radar that maybe you hadn't noticed. And one of the factors that I talked about that's very noticeable now, but but I, you know, I I showed some examples from 10 years ago, and that was the cybersecurity events that have happened. The ransomware attack on JBS was the example that I used. But we've been talking about this. This has happened in the United States. I showed a bunch of things that had occurred from 2011. 10 years ago, a decade yeah. ago, that yeah. had already happened, you know? And why is it that, you know, what, you know, a lot of farmers don't back up their computers <laughs> and, you know, and they think that, oh, well, you know, I'm so small, it's not going to happen to me. No, come on. If you're getting those emails about, you know, taping you on the internet, <laughs> you know that it's it's just a matter of time before they start talking about shutting down your operation or stealing your data or or your um, your software that you use for accounting. So, so that's the other example. The things that are that have already happened. The things that are really uh, not noticeable to an awful lot of people. So shifting shifting towards something that's a little bit more pressing within animal ag, or at least has been popular. It's not. A, it feels like it's had a little bit of a dip, but it's the mm-hmm. alternative meats, alternative proteins. And yeah. I'm going to throw something in here at the beginning because I'd like for you to touch on it. Yeah. When we look at marketing as a competitor now to these alternative proteins there's been two i guess two strategies that have been voiced one is how do you combat the alternative protein and talk about how bad it is 
Or how do you talk about how good your mark, how good your product is? One's positive, one's negative. And I feel as though the positive marketing has a timelessness to it that gives you a much greater ROI and a greater perception long-term from those who are seeing this content. That's my small soapbox from what I've been picking up, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on the anxiety and anger towards fake meat in animal agriculture and and where we are with that and and how we might want to think about addressing that change in our industry. Yeah, uh, great question. I think your observation is very astute in terms of thinking of the positive side as something that's timeless. And I'll I'll come back to that. Uh, Let me just address the, uh, uh, you know, the opposition, you know, the lawsuits. Whenever I see an industry start talking about lawsuits, you've lost the battle already. Uh, No court case is going to give you freedom from from allowing uh, Beyond to call their product a burger, let's say. You're not going <laughs> to reverse that. And as I presented in the, uh, in the Swine Day presentation, uh, you know, when the chairman of Cargill talks about the fact that 10% of total meat consumption, quote, meat consumption, being plant-based in three to four years, that's a pretty clear-eyed signal. And he's talking about how they're going to have to shift resources. That's a signal that this is here and it's probably going to stay. I always say the positive side is the better side. I mean, for instance, what about the the work that's been done over what? It's been a couple of decades now to say that, uh, you know, GMOs, uh, you know, you can't talk badly about GMOs, et cetera. Well, that's, that's a battle that's been lost. But when you see, uh, when I saw a New York Times magazine story just a couple of days ago that talks about the benefits of some of these engineered plants that they're developing, including a tomato, with all of these uh, these additional benefits in terms of nutrition and health that are incorporated in this thing, uh, that really makes me think about that's the kind of messaging that I think I, I want to see. This was a reporter who went to the Innis Center in, in England, which is a great place that, uh, you know, that develops things like and will very probably have nitrogen fixing corn in the ground somewhere in, in the world before too much longer. But that's the place. And that's why I think that, uh, especially in the animal ag sector, talking about the benefits, especially the comfort, the tradition, the established tastes, the differentiation that can take place with certain meat products. That's what I think is, is really the upside of things. The GMO comparison is great because that is a battle lost. I mean, I'll even talk to companies that say GMO free and I'll go, really? They go, yeah, I know that's just a marketing label, but you need it now. And the last thing we want is a label that says real meat, like, right? Like all of a sudden you got a real meat label and I know real pork is a, is a thing that's being pushed right now. Not saying that's bad, but they turn GMO, something that's supposed to be really good for the world into a label that tells people why not to eat something. And the last thing we want is real protein to be a label. Yeah. Especially when there's so many good alternatives like Iowa pork, or as one of my clients is Alberta beef. You go up north of the border and they tend to recognize that that's a higher quality 
uh, product produced in a specific environment that that lends a different taste to other things, you know. And uh, you know, and, and yes, I mean, we could argue grass fed ver- versus corn finished and all of that stuff over in that sector, but that's the place. That's why I showed a couple of uh, visuals in my presentation at Swine Day about, hey, what's the what's the most expensive meat in the world? It's pork. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's it's prosciutto in prosciutto, in Italy yeah. and and jamon in uh, in Spain and you know if you can if there were uh, a movement to try to establish you know those designations and and build those those products from that angle I think especially for a certain category of producers I think that could be much more positive. And and then you go sue the people who steal your your name, you know, yeah. and, and you can and you can make it stick. <laughs> there you go. I mean, at this point, I mean, when it comes to like uh, the Spanish pigs, right? The black Spanish pigs, Iberian pork. That the, that yeah. I mean, it takes a little longer to grow a pig. I think it's around two years. It's a while, but acorns. If you got a, a diet, yeah, right. if you've got a massive presence of acorns on your land, you probably are in a decent position to raise some of that high quality and very expensive pork. And to do it as what I uh, there was a great book written several years ago about startup businesses and about, you know, skunk works types things, you know, experimental processes that suddenly result in a, in a great product. And uh, uh, that's why I think that, you know, that kind of juxtaposition of a couple of things really lends itself. The book is Little Bets, meaning that you don't bet the whole farm on it, obviously. Mm-hmm. You do a little bit. You experiment. You uh, you you devote some labor and some land, maybe, and you know, develop something. It may may take you some time to to get around to it, but you know, and then experiment with it. And 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 don't forget the fact that you don't have to sell everything through a supply chain into a supermarket. You can sell stuff direct to consumers. Uh, there's all kind. The internet enables all kinds of magical and and very creative ways to get your product to the people who want to pay you for it and pay you well for it. And it's an interesting uh, dilemma or change over in the world we live in because a farmer has always been absolutely needed to provide food regardless of what the food was. We ate it. Now people start in a question. And instead of a provider, a farmer has to be a provider and a marketer. And there's this aspect of marketing and sales that I almost feel like the industry or producers have been like, I've never had to do that before. Why am I going to start doing it now? And it's it's more of a like, I'm not just going to do it because people ask me to do it, but you kind of have to now because if people don't know who you are or where you're coming from or why it matters, yeah. they're going to go buy from the people who are telling them why it matters. That's right. If you if you if you want a higher than average price. You've got to present some sort of perceived value for it. And the value might come in uh, confidence or trust or it, it might come. It doesn't necessarily need to be tangible, but something that's different is also something that that is higher value by definition. So while wrapping up here, what's a golden nugget that you can offer back? You've offered a bunch of them, but what's what's something maybe unique about yourself or something that you can... <laughs> You can take from your background or your your career and say, you know, this is one of those golden nuggets that I'd like to leave with listeners. Okay, uh, a couple of them. First of all, whenever any you asked me, uh, set me up uh, before we started and saying something unique about myself, I am married to Madonna. A lot of people cross their eyes and say, "What?" You know, <laughs> and I say, "Yeah, I'm married to Madonna." 
my wife is Madonna Treadway, formerly Madonna Schuster uh, of North Dakota, and uh, somebody who lived in rural North Dakota. And and people always get a kick out of that. She's uh, over the years, I've gotten her to be more and more confident about using her real name as opposed to uh, her middle name. So she's a published author. Uh, twice over it now. And, and just recently, she's just turned uh, 70. So that's one thing that's kind of unique about me as I'm married to her and the name catches people's ears. That's great. The The second thing I, uh, I would tell you uh, about, you know, something I do in, in I, we didn't do it in, at Swine Day, but something I often do with my seminar participants, I have them sit and raise their hand. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I am a futurist. I say, okay, you can put your hand down. You just met the only qualification necessary to become a futurist in the United States. Now, in the next few hours and in the last half hour, I've tried to pass along some information. So anyone should consider themselves a futurist, somebody who looks ahead usually with some analytical ability and some good habits and practices in order to be able to make your business more successful in the future. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Uh, Really, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Popular Pig Podcast. Uh, This is incredibly valuable to all of our listeners, and we really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Matthew. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.